All right, good morning. Um, I have the pleasure of preaching what's called a tweener sermon. That's right. We just ended this huge prayer series uh, where we asked the congregation to join together in a campaign to focus on growing in our maturity in prayer. And many of you have joined with us and we heard stories of what God had done through those things. And we're so grateful for what he's done in your life and helped you grow closer to him in prayer. I've even heard stories of people that want to continue this process. And so they've gone out and bought books and trying to find books to help them continue with this intentionality with prayer. I even know some people that came and said, you know what, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to start it all over again. And we came out of that. And then we ended with this time of thanksgiving after praying and asking and requesting and interceding on behalf of what God's will is, just to hear him to move in our lives, we said, hey, let's do a ser- series where we just reflect on what God has done in our lives and let you share. And that was powerful. It was incredibly moving. And we're about to head into a time of Christmas with a Christmas series that's gonna be focused on what God reveals in the story of Luke and it's gonna continue on into the new year. And then there are these two Sundays that are set aside that are kind of just in the middle. And you know what? Andy's here today. He could have preached, but he said, you know what, Kevin, why don't you take that and figure that one out? And I said, okay. And so this is what I think I'm going to do. I'm going to preach a passage that you have never heard a sermon on. You have never, I promise you, you've never heard a sermon. And if you have heard a sermon on this one, send it to me. I want to hear it because I'm telling you, this is one of those passages you don't want to do a sermon on, so therefore you won't hear it. I think all scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training and equipping the righteousness of man that follows God and loves God. I do, I believe all scripture is. But some passages are just a little more difficult than others. In fact, some are used as weapons by skeptics to harm and hinder Christians in their faith and in their walk and make them think, oh, you think you know the Bible? Well, did you know this was in the Bible? How do you answer that? We're going to look at one of those passages today. In fact, that's how I heard about this passage. Well, I'd read it before and I kind of just breezed by it quickly because I thought, oh, goodness, I don't want to deal with that. But this is how this passage came to my attention. In 2012 or 2013, there was this fellow by the name of Tim Tebow. You You might know him as a quarterback. You might know him as a baseball player. You might know him as a guy that just cares too much about the way he looks on TV and dresses real nice. But you might not know Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow is a very devout Christian. He loves Jesus Christ and he has shared Jesus Christ in all of his platforms. He won a Heisman Trophy. He won two national championships in college. He played in an NFL playoff game where he won it. And in every one of those games, the first time he had a microphone and the first thing he did after those celebratory moments is he bent down in prayer to pray to God or he shared, I'm so grateful for what God had done. And honestly, I bet he even would have said that when they lost except for they had the cameras on the other sideline. With his life, he helped build a hospital in the Philippines. He helped do many new things. He would do so many things to proclaim the goodness of what God has done and bless others with the blessings he's received. And so you would think everybody would agree this is a great guy to lead a football team. But if you read the comment section on some articles, they would say, no, it's not. In fact, this very thing happened. I was reading the story. I got down to the bottom. I was curious how people interacted because they were talking about, is this the right kind of guy you want leading your team? One person said, Tim Tebow was the right kind of person to lead because he's a godly leader and every kid needs a role model like that. And everybody's heart's warmed. And they said, oh, yeah, you're right. 
except for this one person. They said it. Every person looking up to Tim would be fooling themselves because God isn't real. And this first person wrote down, you know what this person needs? He needs some scripture because if he has scripture in this response on this post, he'll receive Jesus Christ faithfully and walk obediently after him forever. And so they respond with John 3, 16 through 18, which says this, for God's, uh, he said, First, you'll be held accountable for what you believe about Jesus because it says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Man, probably changed that person, didn't it? Except they wrote back in response. The Bible also says little boys made fun of a bald man and the godly man cursed the kids by sending bears out of the woods to eat them all. I bet you didn't know that was in your Bible, did ya? Look it up. Second Kings 2, 23 through 35, or 25. And guess what the response was after that? Crickets. No one responded to that. And it bothered me that no one was responding to that. And if for some reason, I, I wanted to, but I'd already made this decision, you know what I'm not gonna do? I'm not gonna respond and increase the temper of what people's attitudes are on comment sections. But I'm sitting here just waiting for someone just to respond. But I was also convinced, I'm not sure people know how to respond to that. I mean, how do you respond to that, right? How do you respond to a skeptic that's so angry at God? Maybe it doesn't, it's not that they don't believe in God, but the God that's revealed in the Bible, there's certain passages that say that he's kind of angry and mean, right? that would allow something like this situation to happen? How do you respond to that person? Well, that's what we're gonna try to do today. You see, this became, uh, this became something that uh, I was kind of attracted to in my life. I, I wanted to know, what are those passages that people would use like that as weapons to go back at Christians when they share truth and goodness of what Jesus Christ had done that sounds like good news to us, but to others it just stirs up anger and response, right? So I began doing something that you can do too. It's called Googling. Have you ever Googled? And I Googled, what are the top 10 uh, atheist Bible verses that they think that make them angry towards God or top 15, top 20? And I got this list, but something's fascinating happened from 2012 at this time to now because I still kind of do this, I confess. I still kind of look to see what other people are saying about God because I'm curious. I'm curious what they're talking about. How do I respond to it? Um, one of my roles here at Grace is to teach and so I wanna be able to respond to those things. And if, how could I expect you to respond if I haven't also dealt with it also, except for you're probably all smarter than me anyway and I already have an answer. But here's what I did is I Googled that and I got these lists. And as I got these lists, at first they were all passages that looked like contradictions in scripture, right? God says he's this, but then he does this. God says he's this, but then he does this. Your Bible's not even telling the truth because it's fallible, right? But I hold to an infallible truth and an infallible scripture, but that's no longer what you read on these lists. Now on these lists, what you get are perceived immoral responses from God. For example, if you read scripture, you might think God's pro-slavery in some passages. Well, that's clearly not right. Or maybe that God is pro-genocide. Well, that's clearly not right. Or maybe that God is pro-homophobic. How do you respond to those people? How do you respond to those passages? 
What's interesting about those lists and how they've changed over time is that this is still one of the topics that they struggle with. This passage, these three verses that we're gonna look at today. Dr. Peter J. Williams, the warden at Tyndall House in Cambridge, he actually said he no longer receives questions about the infallibility of scripture, but about the moral truths. We've actually had him share three of those subjects with you. But what about the passages like this, where a man of God does something that at first glance, you would think, oh no, that shouldn't be in the Bible. So we're gonna do something else. We're gonna look at it after first glance. That's my clever title. And I put after in blue so you know the order. So here's what someone on this message board said. Apparently, this is their attitude and this is what we're responding to today. You ready? Apparently, even though God doesn't want people to worship him who are blind in the eye or have a limb too long or have eczema, he's a big fan of bald men. These youths learned the lesson the hard way. Bald men shall not be mocked, especially when that bald man is a prophet. And when God cannot get children stoned or mauled by bears, he just pronounces blessings on those who bash babies' heads against rocks. All right, we got some anger issues to deal with, right? And some potential misconceptions here. So we're gonna do something. Today, this is a forensic Bible lesson and sermon. CSI Second Kings is what this is. Uh, it would never make the network, but this is a story worth listening to. Are you ready? Our process today is a three-step question. What did I miss on the first reading? What did I miss? The second question we're gonna ask, who is in the story? Are the people in the story actually who they are perceived to be at first glance? Then third, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Was there something more going on in these passages than what we read when we read through it the first time? So let's read our passage. You ready? 2 Kings 2, 23. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he, as he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. He turned around, he looked at them and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. The two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. All right, that was our first glance. Let's do after first glance. What did we miss? Number one, how about the place? Bethel. Bethel is 12 miles north of Jerusalem. Fairly close, especially by walking distance. Well, I guess by any distance. I don't know why I said especially, but here's the deal. It was close by, but it was strategically set up as something else. You see, there was this man by the name of Solomon who was a king, and he was a king over the whole country of Israel, okay? And when he was a king over the whole country of Israel, God spoke to him twice in visions and he was able to actually receive wisdom from God that would set him apart so people would look upon Israel as a light. And he even did this with the queen of Sheba when she came by. She said, yep, your God's the real God because he's blessed you with wisdom. So it actually worked. 
And then he received the gift because his father had too much blood on his hands to build a temple where the whole country could come together and worship their one true God in this place that they could actually have pride over. And it was there in Jerusalem. But then something happened towards the end of Solomon's life. Solomon actually began, uh, he had a little problem where he liked women. And these women would bring in gods from other countries. And so he would marry them and bring in their gods from other countries. And so he had high places scattered all throughout the country in his later years. And you can read about that in 1 Kings 11. And so what happens is God says, you know what? You've done wrong. In fact, I'm not going to let your descendants stay over the entire country of Israel. I'm going to split off 10 from them and I'm going to leave two behind for you and it's going to be called Judah. He doesn't say that there, but we found out that that's going to be called Judah. The northern kingdom is going to be Israel. And the prophet that tells him this actually tells it to Jeroboam. Jeroboam is a person that's in the kingdom. He's a pretty higher up. But when he received word that he's going to receive the other 10 tribes as his kingdom, Israel, word gets around and he finds out about it and he thinks he's going to be killed. So he escapes and goes to Egypt. Solomon ends up passing away. Rehoboam, his son, comes in command. When Rehoboam, his son, comes in command, uh, he receives counsel from some wiser men that said, hey, listen, Solomon made us work really hard. If you ease up a little bit and just allow us to maybe have a little more relaxed workload, we will follow you faithfully for a long time, all 12 tribes together. But then he goes to his buddies who are excited to be in command and they feel like they need to make a statement. And so what they say is, you've, you should go back and tell them, if you think Solomon made you work hard, wait till you experience what I'm gonna make you do because I am king. Rehoboam says, huh, that sounds pretty nice. So he goes back and says that and immediately there becomes this divide. There was an outbreak of protest and these 10 tribes went north and they made Jeroboam king just like the prophet said. Rehoboam was king in the south, Jeroboam was king in the north and they were a divided kingdom except for during feast times. People would leave from the north and go down to Jerusalem to that one unifying temple and they would worship the one true God there. Jeroboam didn't like that. He felt if they would go down there and worship in Judah, 12 miles away, then guess what? They might follow Rehoboam and then they would come back and kill Jeroboam. So Jeroboam did something that sounds pretty familiar. Tell me if this sounds familiar. He, he made two golden calves and he told the people, he said, this is the God that led you out of Israel. He put one in Tel Dan up at the very top of Israel and then he put one right there in Bethel, the very town we're talking about. And it became this center for apostasy, the center for paganism, the center that he would say, you don't have to go all the way down to Jerusalem. You can worship God right here, this golden calf. In fact, it was so bad and so abominable in chapter 13 of 1 Kings, a prophet comes. And when the prophet comes, he announces a curse on the altar. Jeroboam gets mad. He says, seize that man. And when he reaches out and points to him, says, seize that man. God shows his dissatisfaction with what Jeroboam did by crumbling up his hand and making it hard as iron. And he can't even pull it back in. This is the location. Generation after generation after generation began following these pagan gods and it began ingrained in the culture. In that very place, what started there on that day, it became a place where you did not go to God that put his temple in Jerusalem. You worshiped a different God here. So they would look down on the people that would pass by through Bethel to go to Jerusalem. 
And it became this hard-hearted place. That's the place location we're talking about. And these people that grew up here probably experienced that and had hard heart to God. What about the timing of it all? Do you know what happened? You see, one of the more humbling things that happened in my life is when I became a Christian, I realized that these Bibles are called books and you read them in order. I didn't know you did that. I thought you flipped over to one verse, said, what does this mean to me? You try to read it and then you try to make some sort of spiritual connection together and therefore you prayed about it and voila, you were better off. But no, you can actually read them. They number them so you know which one comes after, which is really, really creative. And so... If you go in context and you go back in the passages a little bit, here's what happened. Elijah, who just performed this incredible uh, prophecy, uh, he lived a prophetic life worthy of God. He spoke on behalf of God on earth. And in fact, he called fire down multiple times to convince other people that they shouldn't follow their leaders and that are leading them away from God and shouldn't follow these pagan prophets also and their gods, that his God is the only true God. The worst king at that time was actually, and when he passed away, and then the next king came in, and he passed away shortly thereafter, it was time for Elijah to go, and there became this time for a new guy to come in as a prophet, and Elisha was his guy. Elisha followed him in chapter two, down to Jericho, across the river. They divided the water. You probably read something about that before. Divided the water, walked across, and a chariot of fire came down and took Elijah up, and his cloak dropped, and Elisha picked it up, and he was now, symbolically, the Jedi prophet. He got to wear the hood and everything, go speak on behalf of God. And as he walks up from 13,000 feet below sea level to about 2,000 feet above sea level, he comes to Bethel after a long, long walk. He is wearing the very cloak that people knew. People knew that he was replacing Elijah as God's word is the one that speaks on behalf of God and they were supposed to follow him and when he comes to Bethel, this situation happens. You know, God typically does not respond in quick responses of judgment. He is very long-suffering. The instances where that's not necessarily as true as others are when there's a change in his authoritative leadership on earth. Like Moses, Elijah, Elisha, John the Baptist. You see these, that there's always a big sign. The first thing Elisha does, though, is he stops in Jericho. And when he stops in Jericho, there's this water that's poisoning everybody. And they can't get fresh water. And people are having miscarriages and other things. And he pours some salt in a bowl, which is not a recipe, and he pours it in there, and guess what? Water's better than it's ever been before. God, first thing God does through Elisha is he blesses the people so they will listen to him. Then you have this instance. So in the what did we miss section, if you understand what Bethel is and you understand the timing of what's going on, it adds some context to what is going on. In our lives, sometimes we miss what is going on because we're too focused on ourselves and not on who the other person or other situation is. Have you ever misread a situation in your life? I mean, you've got the Holy Spirit in your life. Have you ever misread a situation? Probably so. I have. We're all fallible and can jump to conclusions. 
Actually, though, in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, he actually says this. He made a very convincing argument that our first instinct is right more often than it's wrong. However, we're taught to be open-minded and doubt our instincts and just be a little bit long-suffering like God. So which is right? Which one should we do? Well, I think both are kind of right, but really what you need to do is a little bit of inventory and investigation on yourself. I got a question for you. Be honest with yourself. You don't have to tell on yourself. What does your experience tell you about your first inclinations, your gut reactions, your gut responses? I'm batting about 55% with my gut responses. I've been wrong way more, way often, not more often. I think I've been right with my gut a lot of times, but I've been wrong a lot. Some people have incredible guts. I would put Tori Garina, who used to work with me, at about an 85% gut. I needed her, and I hired somebody else to come alongside me because I need somebody with a good gut. You need those people in your life, not like Rehoboam's friends, but the wise men in your life that can look at a situation and say, this is probably the wise thing to do. But when you interact with other people that are skeptics that are hard, especially during this Christmas season, that are gonna look at you if you confess to be a believer and see the way you're patient and kind and joyful, your gut response doesn't need to drive you. Your faith response needs to drive you. Is there a way that you can be different than every other type of person that they interact with this season? When you're at a restaurant, when you're at a store, when you're driving in your car, when you're in a parking lot trying to find a place at the mall, when you're waiting in line for Santa, when you are meeting with your family and they are just getting on your ever-living nerve, can you respond spiritually? And in a gracious way, they'll help them see the goodness of what God did this Christmas season. Number two. Who is actually in the story? Your version of the Bible probably says young lad, young boys, boys. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's another one out there. Youngsters maybe, chillins. It might say something like that. But the truth is, is what word is actually used there? The word that's used there is na'ar, and the simplest definition is lad. It is lad. However, the way that word is used in Scripture is a little different than you might think. For example, uh, in Genesis 22, when Abraham was supposed to sacrifice his son on the altar, na'ar is used. His son was in his mid-20s by this time. He was not as young as 8 to 10 years old, like we might have believed whenever using that word. How about uh, later on in Genesis 37, Joseph was 17 years old when he was feeding the flock of his brethren and he was called a Na'ar. Also, Ahab and Abinadab led an army of Na'ar out. They were in their 20s as well to go and conquer and they did conquer. But there's also another word called ketanim in there. Ketanim is used with it and it denotes younger. So not only do you have Na'ar, which could be as old as 30, 28 years old, you have younger right here. Now, many people would read those together and they would think, you know what, that must be you little boys, eight to 10 years old. Well, that's not true. Ketanim is used just to identify they're younger than the other person. For example, Jacob, when he fled from Esau, was over 50 years old, probably in his 70s, when that word was used. In Judges, Othniel, Caleb's younger brother 
who certainly must have been more than a little child because he was old enough to strong and strong enough to storm and capture single-handedly the city of Kirjath Sefer. So it just means younger than the person there, which brings me to who else is in the story. Elisha. Well, forensic evidence would tell us this. Elisha was already a successful farmer for many years before he ever followed Elijah. This is probably six to eight years after that. So we're talking about a man that's at very generously is in his 30s, which means these young lads that we read this story about were probably in their 20s, with the leaders definitely being in their late 20s. The youngest ones were probably around 17 years old. So really, this forms not so much like young boys jeering and they're playing hopscotch and all of a sudden they see a man walk by and they make fun of them. But this is more like a gang, like in a movie. You know how like two couples leave this theater in New York City and they're walking out with their son Bruce and all of a sudden this gangster walks out with a gun and he corners them. It's, but it's 42 or more of them because we actually says 42 and we're mauled and others got away. And so we're talking about this really hostile situation right here. Who is actually in the story? Gangsters. And you know what? This man was alone. That doesn't sound like the story we read at first glance, does it? Not everything is what it seems. You know, I thank God that we're created different. I told you about my family. Uh, my family has people that have uh, lost husbands to cancer, had to remarry. Um, I've had people that have lost children. Uh, wombs not open where they adopted and God blessed them with adoption. Uh, we have people that are incredibly fertile. We have one that's just longing for a kid now, an identity crisis with jobs, others that love their jobs. But God brought all of our family together and we do all love Jesus Christ and I'm so grateful for that. But we all have these incredibly different journeys and that is why he brings us together. We shouldn't forsake the gathering of saints because when we gather together, we see depictions and characteristics of God that we can give glory to that we wouldn't see in our own lives. And to keep your faith selfish and to yourself Man, you could be encouraging someone else that needs that for you. One of the best phrases I ever heard my dad utter, someone asked him, why, do pe why should people go to church? And he said, well, really, there's two reasons. You know, you do need to worship God, but the two reasons are maybe the church needs you or maybe you need the church, but that's it. If you don't think you need the church, there's probably someone here that needs you. Don't forsake that. Be used. You know, I do understand that it's difficult to walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. But he promises that the burden is light and freeing even though the walk is difficult. You will experience joy if you walk faithfully with God and obediently. So let's look at the third question. Why did this happen well, there was an insult, right? Go on up, you bald head. Go on up, you bald head. Hits a little close to home, to be honest with you. <laughs> what, I, what I love about this, though, is that our church doesn't have this attitude because we primarily hire people with bald heads, it seems like. Uh, Lucas and Brian are great examples. You know, you know, Troy's, Troy's actually taking another job, and I don't know if I ruined it by mentioning this, but he had, the, he had the only head of hair we had, so we had to bring Ron back. And so now we have another head of hair. 
which is good on the man's side. No idea why I inserted that. Please edit that from the live feed. Here you go. Go on up. This is a comment repeating what Elijah had just done. He had gone up to be with God. Go on up. Get out of here. We don't want you or your God is what that translates to say. It's not just get out of here, get out of town. This is go on up. Go be with God like you profess that your man that you followed went and did too. We don't want anything to do with your God, so it's fairly hostile. And bald head actually has some significance to it. In Isaiah 3, it actually says twice that some of the judgments of God are that he will make people bald. <laughs> in verse 17 and verse 24, um, in fact, culturally it was seen as a sign of possibly having leprosy and you wouldn't be able to worship and connect with God. So they're calling God's man who is supposed to be a voice for God that people are supposed to recognize because of his cloak. We don't want your God or what you have to say and he doesn't want you either. Get out of here, go on up. It's a very hostile situation. There's much more I could share about bald head stuff because I was really interested in that, but we don't have time for it. The point is, is that insults in this culture are incredibly severe, and you can read that through extra biblical and biblical accounts. In Exodus 21, 17, it says, if you dishonor your father or mother, then you should be stoned if you do insult them in that sort of way. God himself didn't like it, but in Homer's Iliad, even in the culture, Achilles actually was able to get rid of people because they insulted him and turned in, he turned on them so much. Culturally, it was really, really poor. Also, the curse itself, when he responds, brought about wild bears. You might think that's insignificant, except the curses and blessings passages in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 we're there for people to know whether or not they are acting right on behalf of God or they should repent. And in Leviticus 26, verse 22, it actually says, I will send wild animals against you if you disobey me, and they will rob you of your children and destroy your cattle and make you so few in number that your roads are deserted, which is the very location where this happened on the roads. It was a sign that I had replaced Elijah. This is God's spoken word on earth. Whatever Elisha, I command him to do, will go and share. Listen to him. They're saying, get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. We've got our own gods that we've already kind of got here, and you're ruining everything. And in their rejection, these 20-year-old men and possibly upper 17s were mauled by bears, and people heard about it. They knew that this God was real, and they needed to repent and turn back. This small little instance that carries a little bit of weight was supposed to correct and help Israel turn back. Persecuting Christians and believers is a big deal to God. He promises it's gonna happen, but he also doesn't like it. The Center of Study of Global Christianity estimates that 900,000 Christians have been killed for their faith from 2005 to 2015. Very, 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 very few of those reside in America. So what is our response? How do we respond to that? We need to care about it. 
Well, you should pray. You should share what's going on. You should pray. You should intercede spiritually. Because after first glance, you see that God is trying to make himself known to a people that have already rejected him. And the way that he's going to act in response to that is us responding in prayer as the church. And maybe somebody will be sent. So in conclusion, I think that this was a judgment that was supposed to bring the people back to faithfulness and follow the one true God who created them as a nation set us apart. But after learning all this, you can actually read this story a different way. And I'm going to do this. This is an edited version of the way that I think it could be read. You ready? As Elisha laboriously worked his way up the steep, rugged road which led to Bethel, the seat of Baal worship and the headquarters of idolatry, a large mob of young hooligans urged on by the townspeople waylaid him. And they began to jeer and ridicule him, saying, Ascend, you empty skull, just as your pretend your master did. Away with you, you troublemaker. We don't want you or the God you claim to follow. Ascend, you empty skull, if you can. <laughs> and he turned around and looked at the offspring of apostasy and said, May Jehovah God reward you according to your deeds and your request, as Moses has written in his law. And two vicious she-bears rushed out of the nearby forest, mangled 42 of the derisive young renegades, just as the Lord had warned. And then he continued on. After first glance, there's more going on than you think. Can you give other people the same benefit of the doubt that maybe they're responding during this Christmas season in a way that makes sense if you give a little more time, dig a little more in, ask them another question or two just to find out where they're coming from. Because after all, that's what Jesus did. A large percentage of his responses were never, this is how it goes, but he would ask questions to get to the soul, get to the heart of what they're really asking. How much more should we do that with people that don't know Jesus and people that are family members? I think now's a good time to prepare your heart for who he might bring before you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for even the difficult passages and the truth you've revealed in them. God, help us to walk faithfully, lovingly, graciously, long-suffering, with an attitude of joy and reverence and gratitude, especially during this Christmas season as we celebrate what you've done so graciously for us by providing us the Son, the Son that will live a sinless life and die on the cross for our sins and that we look forward to to coming back again. Lord, help many, many people we encounter come to faith in you and possibly even be healed in their relationship with you through our interactions and our gracious attitudes. It's by your son's name we pray, amen.